0: Take your Bibles and let's turn to Psalm one nineteen. We're nearing the end of our series in this. Just to kind of give you a, a heads up. Um, in December, um, Lord willing, we're going to take a look at the first chapter of Matthew. Just Matthew chapter one. Um, it's a it's it's the genealogy of Jesus. Um, so. I'm excited about that. We're going to just think through God's promises that are seen in that genealogy. Um, If you want to do some family tree work of your own, you can do that um, between now and then. But that's kind of the direction that we're going to go in, um, in December. So, Psalm 119, beginning in verse 161. The Hebrew letters that are represented in this stanza... Is, it's just one letter, um, and, and depending on where the, the dot is, whether it's over the right-hand side of the letter or the left-hand side of the letter, determines whether it's pronounced as, as shin, like the, the part of your leg, or it's not sin, it's actually pronounced seen, like I have seen something. So it's either shin or seen, depending on where the little dot is, so that's why you see two, two words there. Verse 161. Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. I hope for your salvation, O Lord. And I do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and testimonies. For all my ways are before you. Let's pray. Lord, we just ask you to bless not only just the reading of your word here, but God, as we look into it, as it's preached, as it's taught, as it's received. Uh, Lord, show us how loving you and loving your word um literally makes all the difference in our lives. Show us that today, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. So like I said, this Hebrew letter is actually it looks like a a crown if you if you look at the letter itself. It looks like a, a little crown with three three prongs, okay? Kind of three prongs. So so if I hold up my hand like this, what what does that mean to you? Thank you for us Gentile Trekkies who have no idea what Jewish religion or heritage is. It, it is said that, that the Jewish priest, when he gives the ironic blessing, the Lord bless you and keep you, the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. It is said that the priest will hold his hand up like this, like Spock, okay, um, and because it represents the three prongs of that crown. And and the letter Shin actually is symbolic of, of Shaddai, a name for God. And so that's why the priest will hold his hand up that way, okay? So the Vulcans would say, live long and prosper. And I think the psalmist would want us to live long and prosper. And this Psalm 119 would, would tell us how to do that. So let's bring it back down to earth now, okay? And just... Uh, get get real here with with our text. And so there's there's three things that I want us to think about as we work through this. And we're getting to the end. And so in some ways, these last stanzas recap everything that we've seen through Psalm 119 and really through this whole series that we've been doing in the Psalms since March, right? So we've been looking at the Psalms of lament and then leading into Psalm 119. And it's all kind of summarized as we come to the conclusion in this thing. But Love for God and then love for his word shapes us, it directs us, it, it should change us. And so what, what, what I think we see in this passage is how love for God and his word first shapes our heart, does, does work in our heart. And then it directs our life. It actually practically directs the steps of our life. Remember what we saw in verse 105? Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It, it, it just practically directs the steps of our lives. And then it also then kind of spurs us on in our obedience. It, it fuels our obedience, I think. So we, we see that in this passage. So look at, I'm just going to work through it kind of verse by verse, okay? Love for God and His Word shapes my heart. And look at that first verse there in verse one sixty one. It shapes what I fear, or or and and what I love. Okay, we've talked about the fear of God a lot in these Psalms, and here the, the Psalmist says, David says, "Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe or fears Your Word." So now now the context here is princes represent government officials okay these are these are people who work in the government these are people in places of authority and so what david seems to be saying here what the psalmist is saying here is that these are people who hold governmental authority and in that place of authority they stand in opposition to to the principles of god to the to the law of god even even to god himself so there's a contextual opposition, if you will, a cultural opposition to spiritual truth is what the psalmist is talking about here. And, and it's just making his life difficult all the time in regard to his walk with Christ. So there's this cultural, governmental oppression that's going on. And he says, they persecute me without cause, but I'm standing in. I'm not afraid of them, he's saying. My fear is of you and your word. This week I watched a 30-minute a speech by Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito. He gave a speech last week to an organization called The Federalist, and he gave their keynote address. And in it, Samuel Alito spoke about the current state of American liberty, specifically how the COVID pandemic he said had, had really thwarted some of those individual liberties, and he gave examples of those. And specifically, he talked about how, and this, is, this was a quote from him, he said, religious liberty is in danger of becoming a second-class right in our society. And he cited examples that have come before the Supreme Court, not just over the last few months, but over the last several years. And he spoke really quietly. He's got a very soft nature to him. So his words were quiet. But Justice Alito was carrying a big stick as he as he spoke. And he created no small amount of furor over what he said um, And and here's the thing that he said, and I do not encourage you to go look this up because it's, it's not a good thing to look up necessarily. But Justice Alito cited a comedy routine from a long way back from a guy named George Carlin. And some of you will remember Carlin's comedy routine, seven things that you cannot say on TV. And Justice Alito pointed out that what Carlin said over 40 years ago cannot be said on TV now makes up most of the dialogue. Of what you hear on TV. And instead of Carlin's seven prohibited words, here's what Judge Alito said. He said, until very recently, excuse me, he said, you can't say. He, he said, now the list is not seven. He said, it's probably seven times 70. And primary at the top of that list, he said, was you cannot say that marriage is between one man and one woman. This was Justice Alito. And, and here's what he said. Until very recently... That's what the vast majority of Americans thought. Now, he said, it's considered bigotry. And that's true. And, and it won't get better, he went on to say. In fact, he ended his speech with this. In the end, there is only so much the judiciary can do to preserve our Constitution. And the liberty it was adopted to protect. And he cited a judge from back in the 1940s, Judge Leonard Hand. And he quoted Judge Hand saying, liberty lies in the hearts and lives of men and women. When it dies there, no constitution, no law, and no court can do much to help it. Now, Justice Alito was speaking of societal liberties. But I want to make a jump from that. For the psalmist is saying, I live under Religious oppression, if you will. Princes persecute me without cause. But he said, I stand in awe of your word. So even in this difficult environment, one who fears God, loves God and loves his word, has a stability. There's a there's a focus of his mind. And, and while the psalmist seems to be recognizing that he stands under political or religious oppression, listen, we are free in Christ. We just sang about it. We have liberty in Jesus. And the liberty that we have is liberty from sin, liberty from wrath, liberty from God's judgment, the freedom from sin and the freedom to serve Jesus, right? And so as we see that, this liberty then shapes the heart of the one who loves God and loves His Word. We are free and we stand in awe of that. So again, There's a correlation here that we've seen throughout the Psalms between God's character and God's people. There's a correlation between God's character and God's word and his people. The God who is to be feared, not those who can kill the body, Jesus said. Fear him who can destroy the soul and hell. So, because God is to be feared, then I don't have to fear anyone or anything in this culture, in this world, right? And because God spoke life by his word, his word speaks life. Peter told Jesus, you alone have the words of life. Where else can we go? Where else can we go? Because God is true and cannot lie, as we saw last week, his word is true. It, there's no lie in it. And because God is love, as 1 John tells us, and he enables us to love him, then I love him. I love his word. I love the, the community around me, I love my people in my church family. So the character of God is because God is glorious. His word is a treasure. Look what he says next. Look what the psalmist says next. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. So the idea here is a warrior who has won the spoils of victory. That's one way to look at it. And the one who loves God and loves his word is like a warrior who battles through it. And finds spoil at the end, finds reward at the end. The one who struggles and works with the discipline and faces opposition and and comes, as we've seen in Psalm 119, to learn God's word, to understand God's word, and then begin to apply it with discernment, with wisdom. Tim Keller said this, To learn and digest the word of God requires a fight. We must battle our busy schedules, our distracted minds, our stubborn hearts, and the world's opinion and disdain. But if we win, the result, Keller says, is pure gold. So like a warrior who wins the spoils of battle, that's how we view God's word. But there's also another aspect to it because the psalmist says he finds great spoil. So it's it's like a warrior, yeah, but it's also, I think, like a wanderer. Like someone traveling, just taking life's journey, and almost by grace stumbles on the treasure of God, the treasure of God's Word, the treasure of the Gospel. So like a wanderer who just stumbles onto it and recognizes its value and does whatever he can or must to gain it. It's exactly what Jesus was talking about with the kingdom in Matthew. When he equates it to the kingdom, he says it's like a treasure hidden in a field. So the man just kind of stumbles on it. And he found it and covered it up. And then in joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. So love for God and his word shapes what I value. It spoils of a war that I fight. It's a treasure that I find. And then there's one other aspect to it. I was thinking about this this week. It's for the warrior. It's for the wanderer. And then it's for the weakest among us. Just the citizen of God's kingdom. Who gets to share in the spoils of our king who wins a victory. And I'm not able to do much of anything except just receive it. Just just take it. And it's his fight. It's his victory. And I'm just blessed enough to be a part of his kingdom. And get to receive those spoils. That's exactly what Paul was talking about in Ephesians. When he said grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says when he ascended on high he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. So the idea there for for Paul is that Jesus is our conquering king hero. And just rides along in the victory procession distributing gifts to the weakest of us. Love for God in his word shapes what I value. Love for God and his word also shapes what I love. I hate and abhor falsehood, verse 163 says, but I love your word. We've said it before. My affections determine the way I live. All right? What I love determines the way I live. And here David says that he hates. And, and he doesn't just stop at hate. He says he abhors. It's not a word we, we use much. It means he is morally revulsed at, at falsehood and at lies. It literally makes him sick. It's just, it just turns his gut in, in that way. And so here he's talking about falsehood, lies, whatever is contrary to God's truth. But this isn't just spoken, okay? This isn't just spoken lies. It's, it's things that are reflected in what we believe and how we think and how we live. That falsehood that's there. One writer said it's to think and act aside from God's truth. Hate is not a word we encourage each other to use much, but hate is a word that's used in the Bible, and it's used in regard to what God hates. Four times in the book, of, four times in this, Psalm 119, we've seen that word used. Ten times, counting today's passage, we hear the word love. And in every of those, all of those cases with hate, it's contrasted with what he loves. And so here again, the character of God is reflected in the word of God and it's reflected in the people of God. In what we love and what we hate. Proverbs 6, verse 16. There are six things that the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination to him or he abhors them. Haughty eyes or proud eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among the brothers. Those seven things clearly God hates. Jesus couldn't have said it any clearer in John 8. Satan is the father of lies. And so... God is the God of truth, right? Jesus is what? He is the truth. And so that character of Christ needs to be reflected in his people. And and here's the issue, unfortunately, is we, we live in a culture and we live in a country where lies are so prevalent. It's like the air we breathe. And we've gotten numb to it. And we're okay with dismissing it. We're even okay sometimes with standing behind it. And that's not to be for the people of God. It's just not to be. Love for God and His Word shapes my heart. Secondly, look at this next section. Love for God and His Word then directs my life. It practically directs my steps. Notice what he says in verse 164, seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. We're going, oh no, golly, gotta get out my day timer or my, you know, my schedule and seven times a day. And there are, you know, there are religious orders that hold to this literally seven times a day. If you've ever been in a Muslim country where they observe their five times of prayer, then you know about 545, it's gonna crank up. And the first one who cranks up in his place, the next imam, a few blocks down, is going to crank up then. And that's just the way it goes, you know, in those countries where we've been. A little bit before six o'clock, here it goes. It just blows up. This, I don't think here in this case, the application for us is not so much, you know, the idea that we're going to schedule seven times. The word seven, I think we understand, is pretty significant in the scriptures. Okay? And it's used over and over and over as a picture for completeness. Seven represents perfection. Seven represents intensity and fullness. And so I think the idea here is a life that's just infiltrated and pervaded with praise. A life that just presents itself to God as a consistent life of worship and praise. It says in Psalm 33, 1 that praise befits the upright. Okay, Praise is a characteristic of God's people. And so, I think we need to be careful here, though. So, okay, Gerald, you're saying we just need to praise God all the time. Yes. But the danger with that is all the time can easily become none of the time. I mean, it's like, well, I drive. I, I have my quiet time on the way to work, you know, as I'm driving. One of two things is happening in that case, and probably both of them. You are not paying any attention to your driving If you're having your quiet time and your prayer time or you're not paying any attention to your prayer time and your quiet time as you're driving or you're doing both of them in a lousy way. I just, you know, I'll just I just pray that way. No, I understand that it's good to redeem the time. But again, the character of God is reflected in the word of God and it's seen in the people of God. And Paul says in Corinthians that our God is a God of order. Not of chaos. There's nothing haphazard about God. There's nothing unplanned about our God. He's not spontaneous in that sense, okay? And so, again, what we see here is that He deserves and He requires our intentional, our complete, our constant, and our consistent praise. And, yeah, seven times a day, if you want to try that for a week just to you know as the spiritual discipline go for it but the idea here is that it is intentional and it consumes us in that sense okay seven times a day my life praises you for your righteous rules what the world would dismiss and hate i, I praise you for it i'm thankful for it love for god It's constant praise. Love for God and His Word brings into my life not just constant praise, but a consistent peace. He says there in 165, Great peace have those who love your law. Literally, nothing trips them up. That's the idea behind the word. Great peace have those who love your law, and they nothing trips them up. And shalom, I mean, I'm not going to take the time, but it's wholeness, it's completeness, it's tranquility, it's contentment, it's having a right relationship with God. It's having a right relationship with others. It's having a right relationship with myself. And knowing that tranquility and that peace in my life. And this bunch, this great peace that he refers to has a source. The fountainhead, if you will, of this great peace is God's great love. It's that compassion that he pours out to us. 1 John 4, starting in verse 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his son into the world so that we might live through him. And then John says, in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave his son as the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sin. That's the basis of our peace. That's why great peace have those who love your law and nothing trips them up because what we would fear in the wrath of God, Jesus has taken What we would be afraid of in the judgment of God one day, Jesus has taken. And we, as we've seen, stand in his righteousness now, not condemned for our sin. Great peace have those who love your law. And there's one other aspect of this that comes to us through Christ. Jesus said in John 14, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Think about that. That was on the night before all of his friends forsook him. And he was left alone. That was on the night before he was tortured. And his life was almost taken from him at the hands of Roman soldiers. That was the night that he poured out his heart before God. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. That was the night before he died. Great peace we have. Because it's his peace. It's his peace sublime, perfect relationship with the Father and the Holy Spirit in that Trinity. And he says, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. In any pandemic, in any political chaos, in any personal suffering, in any public unrest, let your hearts not be troubled. And it is because it is his peace that's given supernaturally to us. As Paul says, it's what? Beyond understanding. It's the peace of God that guards our hearts, that's beyond what we can figure out with our brains. Wow, what a gift that is. This peace is for those who love God and love His Word regardless of the circumstances. It's not a human peace. It's, it's divine. It's Jesus' gift to us, church. It's, it's what we're to walk in and live in and communicate and reflect to the world around us. Nothing trips them up. We have stability Here in stability for eternity. Just, I don't want to belabor this, but one other verse kind of came to mind this week as I was meditating on this. It came from Isaiah, it came from the Psalms, and Peter summarized it in 1 Peter chapter 2. For it stands in scripture, he says, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, a precious and and chosen stone, he says. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not, for those who do not believe, he says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Listen, Jesus is our rock of stability. Nothing trips us up if we put our faith and trust in him. But he is a stumbling stone to those who reject him. Meaning that offense that comes through the gospel, that offense that comes through the idea that I'm a sinner and I need a savior. That offense to some will be their eternal destruction. And, and, and we need to think through that. We need to recognize that. We need to praise God for the fact that Jesus is our rock, that we stand on secure, not the rock of God's judgment that will one day crush us, right? love for god notice what he says next love for god and his word in these last few verses fuels my obedience okay it fuels my obedience love for god and his word gives me patience as i obey it gives me determination to obey and it gives me stability as i obey look at what it says there I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and I do your commandments. I hope for, I'm waiting for. Hope in the Bible is not something of just sitting staring out a window, okay? There's activity in it. And it's holding on to and looking forward to the salvation of God. And the salvation here is is eternal, yes, but it's even more than that, okay? It's his deliverance every day. It's sustaining of us every day. It's his redemption for us. It's the idea that he actually rescues us. And so David's eyes are fixed on the promises of God that God is going to sustain him and save him and hold him now and eternally. And directly related to God's holding of us is our efforts, our work on that. I hope for your salvation and I do, he says, your commandments So directly related to God's effort on our behalf is our effort for him, right? And this is where we sometimes get into trouble. This is where we have to be careful. Paul says in Ephesians 2, it is by grace you have been saved through faith, right? It's not of yourselves. It's not of what we have done. It's a gift of God so that no one can boast. And then in the next breath, in the very next verse, he says that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for these good works that he determined beforehand before the foundation of the earth that we should walk in them so we don't stand on our good works for our rightness before God but because we are right before God in Christ those good works flow from that one writer said those who place the, re- the least reliance upon good works are very frequently those who have the most of them That's true. That's true. God's salvation delivers us from having to stand before him and hope that what we've done is enough. And God's salvation also allows us to stand before him and hear, Well done, good and faithful servant. That we have served him with what he gave us. Love for God and his word gives me patience. Lord, I know you're going to save. I know it's all going to come to full completion one day. And as I wait, I work. And I do it patiently. Secondly, he says, it gives me determination. Look at 167. My soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. There is a determination here. There is a resolve. He says, God, this is what I am going to do. I'm going to obey you. I'm going to obey you today. I'm going to obey you during this lunch meeting. I'm going to obey you in this next conversation as I pick up the phone and have a hard conversation. So you see, it's not enough to wake up on Sunday, on Monday morning and go, I'm going to obey Jesus this week. No, we're not that strong. (laughs) No, I'm going to obey him as I drive to work. All right. Try not to think ill of someone and, you know, I'm going to obey him as I walk into my office and greet that co-worker. I'm going to obey him. I'm, I'm resolved to do this. 1 John 2, verse 4. Whoever says I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. By the way, 1 John, John, there's nothing much in 1 John that you have to wonder. I wonder what he means by that. It's... The problem is not what we don't understand in first, John. It's what's crystal clear. (laughs) I know him. The, The one who says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So it's this Christ-like character again in his word and again in his people. So my soul keeps your testimony, so I love you. And because I love you, my soul keeps your testimonies. You're thinking, that's a circular argument. Absolutely it is. Because I love, I obey. And because I obey, I love. Spurgeon called it a heavenly circle. And that's what it is. That's what it is. Love for your word, love for you, God, fuels my patience. It fuels my determination, and it secures me. It gives me security. And now, stretch your mind just a little bit on this last point. I keep your precepts and testimonies, for all my ways are before you. There is a doctrinal statement here, and there is a practical statement here. And I. Man, it just tears me out of the frame when I hear a Christian say, I'm not interested in doctrine. Oh, I'm not even going to go there. No. That would not be good. So I'm just, don't, don't ever say that, okay? Don't, don't ever say that. Just get rid of that. There's a practical and there's a doctrinal here. The practical here is, again, I will observe. I keep. I obey. Your word is a light to my feet. I'm going to do what you tell me to do. That's the practical dimension of it. But the motivation behind that practical is the doctrinal here. And this is the omniscience of God. All my ways are before you. You see it all. You know it all. Now that can be comforting or it can be very disconcerting to us. All right. It can give us great comfort or it can keep us awake at night. Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit? Remember that? Where can I where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be like night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day. Darkness is as light with you. I take great comfort, God, that I am never outside of your eyes. I am never outside of your attention and I am always in your hand. Right? Amen? We take great security in that. Yet Peter, there at the end of John, Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Peter said, I love you. And a second time Jesus said, Peter, do you love me? And a second time Peter answered, yes, I love you, Lord. And a third time Jesus asked, Peter, do you love me? And Peter said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Think about that for a second. You know all things, Jesus. So not only do you know about what just happened a few days ago when I denied you. Not only do you know what's going on in my heart right now as I'm jealous of John. You know all things, Lord. And yet... You still love me. Wow. You still love me. Listen to this quote. This will be the last time you hear me quote Spurgeon in this series of sermons, okay? We think of poor Peter and his answer to Christ's question. And as we do, let us recollect that Jesus also knows everything that we have done. All those times in which our thoughts have been unpure and unclean, Or our desires have wandered beyond the bounds of what is right and proper. Or our temper has been hasty and hot. Or our spirit has been angry and proud. He sees the whole of our life in a single instant. God's mind does not need certain space of time to think of one wrong which we have done. And then afterwards to think of another. But at present his eyes see every moment. And he goes on to say, as, in, as when a man rises in a balloon above London and he sees the whole city, that's how God sees our hearts. And so God, he says, from his throne on high, sees our whole life in one glance. So just think of his pure and holy eyes seeing every portion of your life, your life at the table, your life in the parlor, your life in the kitchen, your life in the workroom, your life in the bedchamber, your life everywhere. And as you think of all that being under his immediate gaze, I think it must become very solemn for you to say to him, Lord, thou knowest all this. And yet I dare thee to witness that I do love thee, notwithstanding all of these things. This person saying he sees all of it everywhere. And yet the child of God can still say, Lord, you know that I love you. And I would add to that, you know that I love you because you've given me a heart to love you as imperfectly and inconsistently as I do. And so the doctrine of God's omniscience can comfort us. And at the same time, it should cause us to walk in fear of him. It's a comfort. It's it's It also should be for us convicting. It should cause us to fear sin. All right? To recognize that God in his omniscience sees it all. And guess what? He still loves us. He still cares for us. He understands the burden of that unconfessed sin. He understands the burden of that broken relationship. And Jesus in his compassion and in his tenderness says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me if you're weary and troubled in heart. Come to me, he says. I'm gentle for you. I know and that's what John says. This then is how we know that he, we belong to the truth. And how we have set our hearts, listen to this, at rest in his presence. Whenever our hearts condemn us. And then he says, for God is greater than our hearts. For he knows everything. So, child of God, take comfort in God's omniscience. All right, He knows and he sees and he holds us. I'm reading a book. Little book that Ben Francis gave me from out at Theresa, and I'm, I was encouraged as I started it, and I, I still am. I've just started it this week. It's by John Owen, that great Puritan. And, and it's a small, little thin book, which is very unusual for John Owen's writings. And, it, and the title of it is Think Spiritually. Thinking spiritually, and it's based on Romans 8:6. It's a series of sermons that he preached, and like everything he did, he just put them in a book. And Romans 8:6 says, "To be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace." And he wrote a whole little booklet about that. And his eye, and the whole point is, our spiritual activity, the way we think spiritually, is an indication of the new spiritual person that we are in Christ, right? We're, we're no longer fleshly, we're spiritual. And he says there's three markers. I'll kind of leave this to you as way of application. There's three markers as we're thinking spiritually. The mind is actively thinking about spiritual things. There's a growing love for spiritual things. And there's a sense of satisfaction over spiritual things. And then he makes this point. And I'm quoting, so we must ask, how can we know if we have this evidence of spiritual mindedness? And my answer, he says, is read Psalm 119 and think about it. Thank you, John. Owen. He says, see how David expresses his continual delight in the law of God. Can you talk like him? He says, don't make the excuse. But David was special. We cannot be like him. Owen says, for as far as I know, we must be like him if we are ever to enjoy the bliss that he now enjoys. The Bible was written not only to show us what saints were like then, but what they should be like now. I love that. I love that. Love for God and his word shapes my heart. Love for God and His Word directs my life. And love for God and His Word then spurs on my obedience. It fuels my obedience. All understanding that I am held in God's hands. Are you there today? Have you you turned from your own direction and your own desires and your own wants and all that that has brought you, and I know it's not good. Turn from Him and come to Jesus today. Confess your emptiness. He knows about it. Confess your need. He knows about it. And He is the answer to that. And, church, for us, just to rest in these truths and to let God do a work in our heart. This week of Thanksgiving, are we thankful for this word? Are we thankful for the treasure of God's law, His testimonies, His precepts, and all that He gives us? Let's pray. God. We pray that our minds would be growing in the desire for spiritual things, that we would love them, take joy in them, and be satisfied in them. Do that work in the heart of your people this week, Lord. And again, I pray if someone's never turned from their sin and the brokenness that this world and our own sinful nature, God, that they would turn to Jesus, be healed and made whole. And we pray that in his name. Amen.